Hey ya girlies, it's me, Devlin Camp. This is a special queer serial announcement coming to you from the future, 2023. You're listening to an episode from the past, during which you might hear me plug some bonus content, especially in the credits. But as of 2023, here's everything you need to know if you want more queer serial, or if you want to support my many ongoing LGBTQ history projects. I got a lot going on. You can sign up for periodic email updates at the link for everything in the episode notes. First off, you can now listen to my entire backlog of Queer Serial bonus episodes on Apple Podcasts, just like you listen to the regular episodes. Just head to the Queer Serial show page on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to additional bonus episodes for $2.99 a month. Those episodes are everything from my Patreon, minus the visual stuff, but all of the bonus episodes. It includes all of the spin-off episodes, Forgotten Fairy Tales, the White Knight Riots interviews, all of my Mattachine meeting interviews, Randy Wicker Radio, etc., 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 every episode of everything I've ever made. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts for $2.99 a month, or still for $3 a month on Patreon if you want the bonus episodes and all of my visual research and my archive dives included, and behind the scenes of my Randy Wicker documentary. Also, If you're a Spotify kind of girl like me, you can also get all of my bonus episodes through Spotify now too. Just go to the podcast section and search Queer Serial Bonus Shows and there's a whole feed of Queer Serial Bonus Shows. And if you wanna get some gay merch while also supporting my queer history projects, check out the new Queer Serial Etsy shop. Etsy.com slash shop slash queer history uplift. There's a link in the episode notes here. I've got podcast merch from throughout the series and also lots of queer history related items like postcards from Mona's 1930s lesbian bar and Marsha P. Johnson stickers with her own handwriting that says gay love always straight from the Wicker and Johnson archive that I've been working on. And I've got gorgeous mugs that say queer history is world history. Other stickers that say drag is not a crime with a real photo of drag queens being arrested. And I've got these warning stickers that you can put in textbooks that are lacking queer history to warn future readers. Lots of other buttons and other stuff on Etsy too. There are links to everything in the episode notes here and at QueerSerial.com or just search for me on Instagram, Etsy, Patreon, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I think that's everything. While you're on QueerSerial.com, by the way, check out the new episode guide. You can explore the entire podcast series episode by episode with all the research and transcripts and bonus episodes and lots of photos and videos from the true history that I cover, all at QueerSerial.com. Finally, last thing, you don't have to, but if you'd like to, go ahead and catch up on all four seasons of Queer Serial and the bonus episodes before season five comes out this October, Queer History Month. The new season is a standalone story in our history and a spin-off of an event that I briefly touched on in Season 3, Episode 7, if you want a hint. Stay tuned. Thanks so much for all of your support. I literally couldn't do it without you. Enjoy the show. The New York Times reports that since 1947, 91 people have resigned from the State Department. Most of these were homosexuals. He calls them perverts and says they are security risks because they are subject to blackmail. In last week's episode, we saw the Mattachine begin to thrive, despite differences with the newly created One magazine. The magazine's success brought the attention of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, and I left you with two FBI agents arriving on the front doorstep of Mattachine co-creators Chuck Rowland and Bob Hall. And I said we'd cover it next week on Mattachine. And I will, but today I'll only be answering one question about it, before the agents even ring the doorbell. 
because I'm sure many of you are wondering the same thing, and having that question answered will answer many more questions to come. It took me a long time to understand why it was the FBI. Why has the FBI become so interested in homosexuals? Why are they driven to investigate and take down harmless organizations? Sure, homosexual intercourse is illegal, but that can't be it. What is it exactly that prompts the Federal Bureau of Investigation to look in on a small but growing movement of homosexuals, putting informants in their meetings and agents on the Mattachine co-founder's doorstep? Turns out, it's more than law enforcement. It is decades of social and political events that created paranoia about the safety of the United States. And that's not just paranoia about some women being intimate with women and some men being intimate with men. Yeah, people are uncomfortable with that, but that discomfort can be used to fan greater flames of fear. This week, we're going to leave those agents on Chuck and Bob's doorstep for a moment to take a quick departure from our familiar characters and get to know the Mattachine's political foe, the FBI. This week on Mattachine. They are still illegal. Subject to blackmail, exiles, and criminals. How many people have been removed due to the McCarran writer? Policy of the department is that we do not employ homosexuals, and that if we discover homosexuals in our department, we discharge them. This could grow, and it could certainly hit the newspapers with the kinds of activities that you're undertaking. Why are the laws in the book? They were adopted before we had any knowledge of the true facts. Mattachine is a podcast dedicated to exploring the overlooked, forgotten, or often untold stories in gay history. I'm Devlin Camp. In the 1950s, the country is filled with paranoia and fear of communists, the Red Scare. This is the second Red Scare in the U.S., and it runs from around 1947 to 57. But within that boom of paranoia, another witch hunt is underway. At this time, the hunt has yet to be named, but you might have heard it called the Lavender Scare. It will usually be mentioned in history books as if it's a small byproduct of the Red Scare. If it's mentioned at all, it will largely be overlooked. But the Lavender Scare harms far more people than Red. There are congressional hearings, executive agency security briefings, presidential executive orders, Jobs lost and lives ruined. It's a post-war fear that America is in moral decline and the government is working hard to bounce back. This fear is fueled by FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover, Senator Joseph McCarthy, and Roy Cohn, a closeted lawyer who will later defend Donald Trump in the 1980s against the Department of Justice when Trump refuses to rent his properties to people of color. But anyway, the records of the Lavender Scare's congressional investigations of gay employees won't be released until the year 2000. They're closed away from public knowledge for 50 years. Yet another instance of our history being hidden from us. FBI historian Douglas Charles will point out that the FBI's surveillance of homosexuals wrote gay history and the FBI's history. As they stalk queer culture, they create a record of the government's discovery of gays. And while the FBI is trying to manage crime in a desperate time, they will end up shaping the paranoid ways in which gay people live. Eventually, homosexuals, or homophiles, as they call themselves at this time, will have no choice but to resist. Dale Jennings worries that fighting for their rights will bring out the Mattachine's own enemies, but the FBI hunting down homophiles will only encourage the fight for their liberation. Let's rewind to Before the Mattachine before the FBI began this hunt, before Henry Gerber in Chicago, back to the beginning of the 20th century. 
U.S. culture is changing from an agriculturally driven nation to an industrial interconnected society. Machines are driven by coal instead of water, animals, and people. Technological development makes the world more productive without working so many people. Factories are booming, transportation is quickening, communication is becoming more instantaneous. Businesses organized along railroads and cities are flourishing. Factories are popping up everywhere, and as homosexuals venture out to them for jobs, they find each other just by socializing at work. Harry Hay works in these factories. So two things allow homophobia to develop. U.S. citizens consider their values morally superior to those of the old world because their nation's founders obsessively regulated sex. And in the 1800s, gender roles solidified, teaching most people to believe that women are weak and subordinate and men are strong and dominant. These ideas, the moral superiority of the new world, and gender roles come together to enforce conservative perspectives that naturally work against the idea of same-sex couples. For instance, 1918, right after the First World War, on a U.S. naval base in Newport, Rhode Island, there is a chief machinist who reports that he just caught Navy men acting effeminate. They were using female nicknames and apparently even wearing makeup. The report of this chief, Irvin Arnold, works its way up the chain to Assistant Secretary of the Navy Franklin D. Roosevelt. Roosevelt authorizes an investigation led by that chief, Arnold, and the hospital welfare officer. The chief and the welfare officer hire young sailors as what they call investigators. They have these sailors seduce the suspected homosexuals, even though the sailors themselves identify as heterosexual. The sailors take the men out on dates, to dinner, and take them home after and have sex with them. To climax. Then the sailors gather lists of half-baked evidence, which are used to arrest the homosexuals. 24 men are questioned over three weeks, and those 24 gay men don't know it's because of these so-called investigators until after they're found guilty. Most of them can't get lawyers. None of them are ever able to speak with those investigating sailors. There are charges of sodomy and scandalous behavior. Two men are dishonorably discharged. Two are released due to a lack of evidence. But most are found guilty and sentenced to 5 to 20 years in jail. The investigation even takes down the reverend of the YMCA where these men met because it happened on his watch and he's effeminate, so... This is how homosexuality is viewed at the time. The sailors that Chief Arnold hired aren't also tried for having gay sex, because on these dates, during the sexual intercourse, the sailors were in the roles typically perceived as masculine, dominating, penetrative, so they aren't considered homosexual. Only the men in the role considered as female are seen as vile. Homophobia is based in misogyny. So take note, children, those of you gays who put mask for mask on your dating profiles are, in fact, homophobes. Anyway, Roosevelt denies knowing how Chief Arnold and the doctor caught these homosexuals, but historian Douglas Charles will point out in one of his books on the FBI that no matter what Roosevelt knew, he not only authorized the first major federal investigation of gays in U.S. history, but he'll also involve his presidency in a 1937 investigation that will kick off the FBI's homosexual witch hunt, which will last for decades. That investigation is the kidnapping of a 10-year-old boy named Charles Matson. Late December of 1936, 10-year-old Charles and his friends are unsupervised in his home when he's taken. The kidnapper was only seen by the children, so a profile is hard to draw up. A ransom is demanded for $28,000. The kidnapper seems to think the family is wealthy, but they lost most of their money in the 1929 stock market crash, just like everybody else. They can't pay the ransom. Charles's body is found naked and bound. 
The investigators that spoke to the children had suspected that the kidnapper might be incoherent and demented. These terms in their notes, in addition to the boy being found naked and bound, leads the press to assume and push the story that investigators are looking for a sexual predator, which, because it's a man who kidnapped a boy, means a homosexual predator. Authorities already associate homosexuality with criminals anyway. The Great Depression is a time with a huge rate of homelessness, and a common stereotype of a transient person is that they recruit young people for sexual pleasure. This idea also comes from a misunderstanding. Some transient people have to trade sexual favors for food or money to survive. So, putting all those steps together, in the case of Charles Matson, investigators begin to look for homeless homosexual suspects, and a sex crime panic takes off. There isn't an actual rise in sex crimes, but a new awareness of them. New forensic work and crime investigations paired with the desperation of the Great Depression sets people off. Media rages about concern for the children and the threat of sexual degenerates. FBI Director Hoover announces what he calls a war on the sex criminal. He's already publicly stated an end to kidnappings before this case, and he's likely embarrassed that it's happening again. Hoover is driven to pursue and take down sex criminals. He believes homeless deviants are progressive criminals who will move on to murder, so he begins a systematic collection of info on sex offenders. Of course, because homosexuals are also criminals, they're also to be included in this file of sex offenders who might eventually progress to murder. Charles Madsen's killer is never found, despite Roosevelt's public promise that the FBI won't stop looking. And they do keep looking until 1985, but the case will remain unsolved. This case is devastating for so many reasons, only one of which is that it sets off the FBI's systematic collection of information on gays and a widespread witch hunt. The country's reaction to this case is much different than a similar case in 1924 Chicago about 12 years before. Two young college men murdered a 14-year-old boy simply to see if they could get away with it, and they were lovers, but that wasn't really something that was plastered all over the papers. It wasn't met with public outrage that this country was slipping into moral decline. These young men were actually pretty brilliant. They were wealthy university grads, and one of them was headed to Harvard. The public perceived them as overeducated, too rich, and undisciplined in religion. Their homosexuality wasn't really an issue. But when Charles Madsen's similar case happens in the Depression, the country sees gender roles and sexuality in a much more rigid way. Advocacy groups work to protect the children, and states have enacted sexual psychopath laws. These really just put queer people in prisons and mental institutions. As the government begins a sort of discovery of homosexuals, the country develops a perception of them based on the information the FBI is releasing about these so-called perverts. And soon, they will not only be seen as predatory, but also as national security threats. If you're interested in the stories I'm telling here, please check out our show's website, mattachinepod.com, for a list of our sources. I can't give you all the incredible details from every single book in this show. The devil really is in the details, and some of the nitty-gritty of how these lives were destroyed and how some of these people triumphed over the system is truly astonishing. There are so many stories that need to be told, but there's simply not enough time in one show. Stories like how Hoover influenced and dispersed information about Roosevelt's homosexual Undersecretary of State Sumner Wells to take him down, and stories about the gay-baiting of David Walsh and Philip Faymonville to end their careers as well. You can read about them in Douglas M. Charles's book, Hoover's War on Gays. This is a time in which two authors who specialize in crime, one of them a physician, 
wrote that the homosexual will murder his victim during an act of sexual frenzy and afterwards rob him. This era is a time when masculinity is threatened and people are lashing out. Some things never change. Politicians define communist subversives as weak or effeminate, so gays are seen as a direct threat to American manliness. So fragile. In the State Department, from 1947 through 1950, about 100 gay federal employees are fired each year. Their lives and careers are ruined. About 1,000 people in the military are discharged every year as well. By 1951, while the Mattachine is growing, 60 federal employees per month are fired and up to 2,000 per year in the military. And yet, did you learn about this in your high school history class? The FBI and the local police begin to coordinate. They keep records on sexual deviance. They send the United States Postal Service to work monitoring deliveries to single men that are on their lists. Back at the State Department, in August 1946, Senator Patrick McCarran sponsors a writer to a bill that allows the Secretary of State to fire anyone they consider a security risk. Congress fears communist infiltration and demands loyalty and tighter security. The State Department focuses in on anyone they think could be blackmailed into turning in government secrets to the Russian enemies. People with dirt that could be used as blackmail, the state believes, are drunks, adulterers, and homosexuals. Suddenly, the concern to purge gays from the government is newly invigorated and easily done due to the McCarran writer. February 1950, not long after the McCarran writer, Senator Joseph McCarthy gives a big speech. He brings fresh concern for gays in government jobs by announcing that 205 card-carrying communists are working in the State Department, and then his subsequent blurring of homosexuality and communism on the Senate floor, McCarthy incites a new type of sex panic. This makes the State Department look really bad. A week later, Deputy Undersecretary John Purifoy goes before a congressional committee. He denies that the department employs communists, but says 202 security risks have recently been removed. Republicans see this as an opportunity to prove that President Truman can't protect the nation. The Congressional Committee questions Purifoy for clarity. They want him to support McCarthy's charge and embarrass the State Department under Secretary Dean Acheson and President Truman. The Secretary of State, Dean Acheson, makes an appearance on Capitol Hill for an entirely different subject, and the press is all ears as Senator Stiles Bridges asks, Mr. Secretary, what do you consider to be a security risk? Acheson lists examples of what he considers a security risk for the government. Things like spies, communists, people who leak classified info, Nazis, if only he knew. He explains what the State Department looks at when vetting new employees, whether the person has, as a matter of character, any defect which would lead him into any of these difficulties, he says. Bridges asks, Such as homosexuality? That would be included. Uh, how many people have been removed due to the McCarran writer? One. Now, how many other people that have been under investigation by the department have... Resigned. Purifoy butts in for his boss. In this shady category that you referred to earlier, there are 91 cases, sir. Bridges wants a more specific answer. What What do you mean by shady category? We're talking about people of moral weaknesses and so forth. Chairman Patrick McCarran adds, Now will you make your answer a little clearer, please? Purifoy finally says, Most of these were homosexuals, Mr. Chairman. The press explodes. Purifoy wanted to prove that security was effective. They pushed out 91 people. But everyone sees this as proof that sex deviates roam the government, making our country's secrets vulnerable to blackmail. 
gays and communists become tied together. It becomes one of those things that one party latches onto in their rhetoric against the other party until no one can distinguish the two and everyone assumes it's true. Articles fill the paper reporting on sexual perverts infiltrating the government with headlines such as perverts fleeing State Department. On the radio program Meet the Press, guests discuss the 91 without defining who they're referring to. Everyone knows. Purifoy's admission boosts McCarthy's support by the public because it kind of proved McCarthy right. And if he was right about that, perhaps there are 205 card-carrying communists working for the government. Around this time, McCarthy receives 25,000 letters from the public, three-fourths of which show concern about sexual deviance in government jobs. Only a quarter are writing to him about red infiltration. His speeches continue to mention communists and queers together, and his approval rating soars, for a while anyway. He beefs up his stories with new lies, and adds a story about a quote-unquote flagrant homosexual that had been reinstated in the government, and this man has friends who are also sexual deviants and Soviet agents. It actually is making sense to people that both groups are blurred together, because homosexuals and communists have underground subcultures the American people are beginning to discover. They both have literature, meeting places, cultural codes, and even sometimes bonds of loyalty to each other. The public considers both conditions psychological issues of morals developed from childhood. They assume that gays living together, secretly pairing up, is like the communists gathering in cells together. The media speaks of the 91 as if they're getting together in a group to strategize in the halls of the State Department. In one of many Senate debates, Senator Kenneth Wary of Nebraska asks, can you think of a person who could be more dangerous to the United States of America than a pervert? He states, Wherever they may be employed in a department handling defense secrets, moral perverts are a security risk because of their proximity to persons having security secrets and documents containing such information. He claims this blackmailing technique is a tool used often between fighting nations, though he has no evidence at all to prove it. The blackmail theory is perpetuated by the press. And when there's press coverage, it's usually written with so many euphemisms for homosexuality, it's practically written in code. They use phrases like men of unconventional morality, weakness, habits that make them especially vulnerable to blackmail, peculiarities, morals, problems, moral risks, undesirables, unusual morals, moral weaklings, sexual misfits, mentions of Kinsey, and most of all, security risks. Most people in the public assume a security risk or someone disloyal is just a lesser version of a communist. But there is a distinction. Someone guilty of disloyalty is guilty of espionage or having a connection to communist influence. Security risks are people who perhaps don't want to give away secrets, but could be coerced into giving them away. Security risks are also people who talk too much or drink too much or both. But there is a double standard. You can drink and talk, just not too much. One homosexual encounter, though, and you're out. And out of the three, drinking, talking, and homosexuality, only one is actually illegal and kept on record, and the three are lumped together. A talkative drunk can be closely associated with homosexuals. Movies at this time depict alcoholics as repressed homosexuals, the type that can only act on their feelings while drinking. Most dismissals of gay employees are based on circumstantial evidence like this, or perhaps that the employee is associated with known homosexuals, or they were arrested in a known gay cruising area. So most dismissals are of male homosexuals. Two out of the 91 were women. Men are targeted more specifically because they cruise outside more often. 
but both gay men and women are affected by the witch hunt, and the government's stigma against immoral conduct also extends to heterosexual women. Of course, the stigma of what the government considers immoral conduct extends to everyone but straight white men. Republicans want to move focus from communists to homosexuals. It's easier to prove, and there are more people to fire, which shows they're getting something done. The firings were happening before McCarthy, but it becomes an integral part of politics because of him, and it will remain policy for decades long after McCarthy is censured. The policy is hard to fight because no one can stand up to fight for their dismissal without outing themselves. And outing yourself means disconnection from family, loss of future work, harassment from former friends, removal from schools or churches, or future incarceration in a prison or asylum. We talked about this in our first episode. It's the same reason the Mattachine is anonymous. In the State Department, when homosexuals are found out, they have to resign quietly or risk publicity. Much like the cops arresting Dale Jennings encouraged him to do in our episode last week, if they admit guilt, they give up everything in their life. The press eventually loses interest because there isn't a fresh story to follow. The firings just become routine, business as usual in Washington. Homosexuality is seen as so criminal that arrests and firings are viewed as just. The hunt for homosexuals is so fiercely backed by the Republican Party, it causes dismissals for more gays than communists. It's so easy. It turns a spotlight on people who are already hiding in a closet. In small rooms and offices all over DC, employees seemingly at random are pulled from their desks and asked to come in for questioning. For instance, a man named Robert, who graduated from an Ivy League school, has worked for the State Department for 20 years and is called into a small room during a normal work day. Information has come to the attention of the Civil Service Commission that you are a homosexual. What comment do you care to make? The interrogator then quickly begins to list names. They assume the homosexual has a great desire to talk. They look at the homosexual community the way they picture the communist community, a fast-moving network of moving information. They all know each other and work together with purpose. Robert wants to have a hearing on the matter. The interrogator tells him if he has a hearing, he will be outed to his father, an officer in the army in Texas. The interrogator says everyone at his father's base will know that their officer has a homo-communist security risk for his son. He threatens to out Robert to his entire family. But he won't do it if Robert names names of his homosexual contacts in the government and resigns quietly. He does. When gays are asked to resign, they don't put up a fight. What they are, they are guilty of being. And because of the McCarran writer, it is illegal to be what they are. But even outside the government, no matter what job a homosexual holds in the world, their dismissal from work is on the table. The federal government's behavior sends the first clear message out to America about how we view queer people in society. Not to be trusted. The Foreign Relations Committee investigates McCarthy's claims about these State Department employees. The chairman, Senator Millard Tidings, is on Truman's side. Tidings is ready to dismantle McCarthy's credibility. Let me have him for three days in public hearings and he'll never show his face in the Senate again. On the first day, Tidings immediately asks for the name of the State Department official McCarthy claimed was reinstated, this flagrant homosexual that McCarthy announced was given his government job back. And Tidings actually knows the story is true. And he knows the name already, Joseph Panic. But Panic had been regarded as an anti-communist supporter of McCarthy. If McCarthy would name him, it would prove before the Senate and the world that McCarthy is protecting a homosexual, and his entire argument merging gays and communists would be discredited. 
McCarthy, of course, refuses to answer the senator. He talks around the question and makes himself appear to be a victim of Senator Tidings' relentless questioning. Senator Ralph Brewster speaks up to Senator Tidings. Does the senator consider that the cases testified to by Mr. Purifoy of 91 sexual pervert or moral degenerates are bad security risks? Tidings agrees, but points out that his committee is here to look into disloyalty, not security risks. Communists, not homosexuals. He's just trying to use a case of a homosexual as an example to prove that the two are mutually exclusive. Brewster adds, Their loyalty might be subject to undue influence. Tidings agrees again, adding that heterosexuals could have the same issue. They could be blackmailed as well, and he would look into all of these cases. Senate floor leader Kenneth Wary, that guy who said, Can you think of a person who could be more dangerous to the United States of America than a pervert? He points out that the 91 homosexuals have already come to the committee's attention. Tidings counters. They have already been fired. Wary Bucks, explaining the committee is responsible for current and former employees and that these 91 should be brought before the committee to provide leads into cases of disloyalty. Naming more names. The fight goes on into the next day. Discussions dig into McCarthy's lack of evidence and vague charges, especially since he won't name this flagrant homosexual reinstated into the government. McCarthy points out another homosexual arrested while cruising, who was dismissed from the state and then joined the CIA. Tidings keeps trying to move the discussion back to communists and push the homosexual issue into a category of mental health instead. I know there is a great desire to shift from communists to homos. I ask my colleagues to stop the continual heckling of the subcommittee about homosexuals and other matters of that kind. He insists he will look into the CIA employee. Obviously, a man may have the terrible disease which has been referred to and yet may not be a party to foreign espionage or may not be a party to deliberately being disloyal to his government. Concern is expressed by senators that this might be a contagious disease spreading and contaminating entire offices. The social stigma is so great, one of them explains, that blackmail has a regular practice of preying upon the homosexual. This is completely untrue. There's no evidence to support that someone has been blackmailed because of their homosexuality, and the great social stigma only exists because these people in high government positions are perpetuating it. But much of the committee believes that a gay person would sooner commit treason for a Russian spy than expose their own secret. The public hearings end. Tidings is unsuccessful. McCarthy has started a movement, and much of the country generally believes the State Department is riddled with deviants running the government. The Federal Loyalty Review Board passes the buck to President Truman. They agree that the president should decide if a homosexual or alcoholic should be considered a security risk. The press latches onto this, criticizing the move. It seems that now, if Truman doesn't fire homosexuals, he will be seen as a protector of security risks. And if he does fire them, Congress will demand to know how they ended up working for the government anyway. Either way, Truman's administration will be seen as incompetent in this regard. Columnist George Sokolsky asks, Certainly Harry Truman cannot like either communists or homosexuals. Why does he protect them? Why does he fight for them? Indiana's Muncie Star reports, The people know that hundreds of communists and sexual perverts have been kicked out of federal jobs. They also know that these people were hired while President Truman or President Roosevelt were in office. The public is beginning to see strong women in the Soviet Union, and the Soviets' use of childcare is also proof that communism is against the patriarchal family. If they're anti-family, 
or at least what many Americans consider a family should look like, then Russia must support the homosexual, and maybe they're all working together. Russian support of homosexuality is somewhat true, because homosexual acts were decriminalized there, for a time. But as Stalin rose to power, he ordered mass arrests, believing that it was something of a sinful, lower-class pleasure of gluttony. A bourgeois decadence, as historian David K. Johnson will describe it. But the media pushes the rhetoric of gays and communists working as one, a magazine even reporting that homosexuality is Stalin's atomic bomb. People are concerned about America's survival. A group from my hometown of Evansville, Indiana, called the American War Dads, writes to McCarthy asking why these vicious persons are working in the State Department and why they aren't replaced with young men and women of sound Christian families. They worry about America's legacy as a Christian nation and that morality will break down across the country. A vice officer in D.C. testifies that thousands of sexual deviants are working in the government. Pressure builds. Journalist Max Lerner writes... This is a story in which only accusers and the hunters, Senate probers, security officers, police officials, get their names printed in the papers. The hunted remain anonymous, unspecified, uncounted, nameless men. Homosexuals aren't able to speak up and say, I'm pro-American and homosexual. No one would believe it. While their lives are debated and overanalyzed all throughout the media and Washington, thousands of queer people are left unemployed and still in the closet. They are unseen enemies that blame can be placed on. A scapegoat, just like Harry Hay said they would be. As the media reports the mass firings, Harry Hay is living in his Silver Lake home with Anita and his daughters. These scapegoats need someone to represent them, or one day Harry will be one of them. He already sees himself as one of them. Meanwhile, at the FBI, rumors of J. Edgar Hoover's sexuality are also circulating. What's important isn't necessarily whether or not Hoover is gay, because we'll never know. But what stands out about these rumors are gender and sexual stereotypes of this time, things that influence the perseverance of the FBI. Hoover is a bachelor who lives with his mother and will until she dies. He'll be 43 when he finally lives on his own. He's particularly close with his number two man at the FBI, Clyde Tolson. He and Clyde dine together often and vacation together. Hoover will one day will most of his estate to Clyde Tolson, who will be buried near Hoover in the Congressional Cemetery. There's no evidence to support the men are homosexual or heterosexual. Hoover holds strict Victorian values that he pressures onto the U.S., so either way, he keeps any sexuality he might enjoy quiet. And when the rumors spread, he sends FBI agents to intimidate people who even suggest he's gay. Sometimes he demands they sign a statement denying their claim. Hoover sends a special agent in charge to a woman who made claims about his sexuality in her bridge club in Cleveland. The FBI sack reprimands her, and she's intimidated into telling her bridge club at their next meeting that she was wrong and sorry. These stories go on and on. Hoover biographer and FBI scholar Richard Gid Powers will write in his 1987 book, Secrecy and Power, that the work and friendship between Hoover and Tolson was so close, so enduring, and so affectionate that it took the place of marriage for both bachelors. Like how some gay couples at this time own a business together in order to have a legal relationship. He'll also cite the only suggestive evidence Hoover and Tolson were a couple. Intimate photos Hoover took of Tolson sleeping. Some people will use this relationship to show that gay people have always held high up government jobs and they were effective leaders. Some will say the possibility of Hoover's gayness is an example of internalized homophobia. And perhaps that is what drives him. 
But, like I said, we'll never know. If we look at Hoover and Tolson as a secret gay couple, or just closeted men working together, we have to accept stereotypes as evidence. Another historian, Claire Bond Potter, will point out that Hoover's queerness isn't the point. He doesn't fit what is considered the normal role of a man, so he's queer either way in the sense that he's different. The point is that rumors are spreading because homophobia is rampant. Even if J. Edgar Hoover is straight, he likely would still do the same thing he's doing. He's participating in encouraging homophobia that already exists. April 10th, 1950, Hoover sends a list to the White House of 393 federal employees arrested in the area on charges of sexual irregularities in the past three years. This is an early version of Hoover's FBI sex deviates program, much like his collection of information following Charles Matson's kidnapping. Over the years following the Matson case, Hoover and his FBI disseminated information gathered on homosexuals to offices throughout the government, giving them enough evidence to purge gay employees from their workplaces. By that November, nearly 600 people are fired. The State Department alone is firing about one homosexual per day. That is more than double the amount of people suspected of disloyalty. The issue is discussed so often in the House and in the Senate that one congressman says, I do not know what homosexuals are, but I never saw anybody get as much free advertising in the Congress of the United States in all my life. Many cases will be documented in books like Charles's volume on Hoover, but as Charles will point out, it would be impossible to document the entire witch hunt within the FBI, particularly because the sex deviates program file will be destroyed in the late 70s. But because over 500 people are dismissed in 1953 alone for reasons listed as security rather than loyalty, it's likely that most of those 500 people fired in one year are gay. Throughout the Lavender Scare, when people are focused in on their fears created by the Red Scare, the number of people fired for being gay will far and away exceed the number fired for any real or fictitious connection with communism. It began as a series of misunderstood stereotypes turned into a political weapon and became a moral panic throughout the country. It affects the life of every queer person in the closet or out, and a hate grows that will still affect queer lives 70 plus years later. The stigma of being queer in any way is pushed in books about lesbian strategies of gathering to corrupt schoolgirls and pamphlets about how military homosexuals raped other men. One writer publishes a warning of 10,000 faggots working in the government, honeycombed in high places with people you wouldn't let in your garbage wagons. Calls come into the FBI offering tips. As I mentioned in episode two, an unnamed informant finds quite a scoop. He finds he knows two communists who are also homosexual. He calls the bureau to report that these two homosexual communists, Chuck Rowland and Bob Hull, are living together. The FBI marks their sexuality down in their files under health. The media treats homosexuality like it's an epidemic that the communists will use to take the country down, just like Paul Coates implied in his Daily Mirror column upon his discovery of the Mattachine. The FBI sees the reasoning in that, and they take Coates' implications seriously. They're quick to investigate the newly organized group Mattachine. They employ snitches inside the Mattachine organization whose identities will mostly remain unknown, but not all of them. The informants hand in copies of the new One magazine, created in part by Chuck Rowland, that homosexual communist. Director Hoover sends two agents to investigate Chuck. 
The director is beginning to close in on an American enemy that will prove the connection between communists and homosexuals. Chuck Rowland and the company he keeps, The Mattachine. Next week on Mattachine. Stay tuned for a preview of next week's episode. Mattachine was created and hosted by me, Devlin Camp. Your friends don't have to be gay to like this show. In fact, I'm getting a lot of positive feedback from heterosexual moms. Hi, Deborah. Please share it with anyone, no matter where they fall on the Kinsey scale. If you've got a sec, rate and review the show on iTunes. It's a totally free way for you to support the show, and it helps us expand our audience and share these stories. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Mattachine Files. Our editorial advisor is Paul DeCicio, who is not only brilliant, but also sends the best Kamala Harris gifts. And thanks to Albert Williams for constantly telling me stories. Also thanks to historian Jay Hathaway for his explanation of exceptionalism and essentialism as the root of American homophobia, which we explored today. You can find the links to his work and our other sources on mattachinepod.com. And if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can do that on the website too. Senator Stiles Bridges and the State Department interrogator were voiced by Evan Camp. Kenneth Wary was voiced by Albert Williams. Ralph Brewster and the Muncie Star Reporter were voiced by the very talented John Roth. Senator Millard Tidings was voiced by Garrett Williams. Mike Kanish voiced Deputy Undersecretary John Purifoy. George Sokolsky was voiced by Mike Lysak. And one of our journalists was voiced by Matt Camp. Hi, Dad. I encourage you to look up the movie J. Edgar, written by Dustin Lance Black. It shows the growth of the FBI and what Hoover's private life might have looked like if he and Clyde Tolson really were living in the closet. The original Mattachine Society Jester logo and audio clips of Harry Hay are courtesy of One Archives at the USC Libraries. Audio clips from The Rejected, the first American documentary on homosexuality, are licensed by 13 Productions and WNET. The music for this episode were the songs Floating Cities, Thunderbird, Thunder Dreams, Dame May, Just As Soon, and The Complex, all by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0. The permissions and licenses for this show certainly add up. If you'd like to contribute to our production, you can check out our Patreon campaign at patreon.com slash files and contribute as little as one dollar per episode donors get private perks like photos to the research process pdf transcripts of episodes among some other things if you're a school teacher contact me on mattachinepod.com using your school email and you'll receive transcripts of every episode including our source material free of charge feel free to teach your students all the queer history you can get your hands on thanks for listening here's what's coming Next week on Mattachine. After the Dale Jennings trial, people began coming in in droves. Corporations under a government contract vet their employees to be sure they aren't gay. It acted as a paper facade. People wouldn't come to the groups unless they felt there was something out in front of them. If Mattachine means this, then I'm with you all the way. Three years ago, when you and Bob and Dale and I began our initial discussions, we were pioneers in a hostile society. This and There is no record of a Mattachine Corporation. If I belonged to that club, I'd work. Who are the people who make policy for the Mattachine Foundation Incorporated? That investigation is codenamed Common Phil. We introduced at this time the name homophile. What exactly do we mean when we talk about homosexual culture? He is unhappy, neurotic, torn by conflict. Inhibited in his social life. The manner of speaking and thinking, the beliefs, traditions, and the attainments of the homosexual minority. Our moral code obviously cannot be the same as the heterosexual one, since it's not based on the necessity of reproduction. The FBI finds the Mattachine headquarters listed under the address of Mrs. Henry Hay. No, Chuck, this move isn't radical, it's betrayal. You can't build a democratic society on a bunch of diversified individuals going nowhere. Hal and David begin to understand that there are Mattachine leaders headquartered in Los Angeles. That's where the money goes. The truth is this. After three years, we haven't started an esoteric group. We've set a movement in motion. Everybody said that gays would not fight back. 
Security risks. Wonderful. It's like 50s TV. That's exactly what it is. Dragnet. This week on Mattachine. 